Good morning. Please pray with me, if you would. Loving God, we ask that you would illumine our minds and hearts, that the words we hear read and proclaimed might be for us your word by the power of your Holy Spirit, as it is in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. The first scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 9, and then chapter 3, 22 through 24. These are some of the earliest verses in our scriptures coming as they do at the start of the book of Genesis. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then continuing on in chapter 3, verse 22, Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. Our second scripture reading, the New Testament lesson this morning, comes from the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, and the final chapter of that book, chapter 22, beginning with verse 1. Hear God's word to us. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it was my blessing and privilege yesterday to officiate at the wedding of Eric Mulligan and Christy Lloyd-Jones. It was down in the Vista area of San Diego, at an outdoor venue. And because of social distancing restrictions and the importance of keeping very low numbers, it was mostly just family. As I looked out on the couple and those gathered, there were reminders before my eyes that a deadly virus was in the air. Chairs were all situated at least six feet apart from each other. Everyone in attendance was wearing a mask other than Eric, Christie, and me, and I was standing further back from the couple than I have before for a wedding. It was a powerful visual reminder looking out on those seated that death was in the air. And I was grateful to Eric, Christie, and the venue planners that they were not trying to ignore that virus or live in denial of it. They had counted on it sought to address it and made appropriate changes for the wedding ceremony like social distancing and mask wearing and very small numbers in the outdoor venue. And yet, in front of that image of the first mask wearing wedding congregation I've ever seen, 
there was also a couple, both wonderful, thoughtful people and deeply committed Christians in love with each other. I saw before me two people pledging to love one another till death do they part. They had planned a time in the service to wash one another's feet. And it was a poignant statement of their commitment, not just to love one another in word and speech, but in deed and truth. As they made their vows to one another, I saw a marriage come to life right before my eyes. Against a backdrop with masked attendees reminding me vividly of the deadly coronavirus and the roughly 120,000 deaths it has caused in the United States so far, there it was too, right before my eyes. Life, the precious life of a brand new marriage. I have sometimes compared marriage to a child. It is given birth in a wedding, but then it needs care and nurture as it grows and develops. And it was like I was seeing yesterday the birth of a new life. Well, here's my question for all of you this morning that you can respond to if you wish in the comments section. In recent months with this pandemic and so many reminders of death, what has been something that has spoken to you of life? What symbol or image or event has spoken to you of life? A child, perhaps? A doctor, nurse, or a healthcare worker? Some part of the natural world that surrounds you? Something growing that you see daily before your eyes? Perhaps it's some new effort, initiative, or movement at work in the world. What symbol or image or events speak to you of life? If you feel led, you can put those now in the comments section. I love to do weddings because of the life of a new marriage, I get to see birth before my eyes and the preparation I get to do with a couple prior to that day. But I will confess that I also love to officiate at funerals too. I love honoring a life, remembering what about a person was good and faithful and true. I love the family connections that can take place at funerals in shared grieving and time together, shared appreciation for what a person's life had meant to the world. And I find at funerals, there's a healthy, sober recognition that death is real, tragedy is real. I have officiated at funerals for people who died far too soon, heartbreaking. Such services are but important. For I don't think it serves us well to deny the reality of death. If we do, we would not recognize the preciousness and precariousness of life. We might not take appropriate precautions. I've attended and been a part of funerals that were the result of auto accidents and in many cases avoidable auto accidents. Death reminds us to take appropriate precautions. I'm glad that we are taking precautions today in the midst of the coronavirus to worship remotely, that a reentry task force at Knox is being very careful in thinking through, praying through, planning how we would do reentry so we could do it safely. We want to acknowledge the reality of death, not to deny it, lest we put ourselves or others at undue risk. And in recent weeks, there is a particular image of death that has arisen front and center in our nation's consciousness. 
the death of George Floyd, an African-American man who was pinned down at the neck under the knee of a white police officer for eight minutes and 46 seconds. That death has brought to the national conversation the names of other African-Americans killed by police, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Eric Garner, Trayvon Martin, Jordan David, and others. And we don't want to turn away from those deaths, to deny them, lest we fail to bring about necessary change, fail to take appropriate steps to ensure such deaths don't continue. I want to keep deaths like those in my consciousness, don't you? There have been nationwide funerals for George Floyd to lift that death to the public consciousness and help our nation grapple with it and work together towards a world where such killings cease and racism is no more. And yet one of the reasons I so value funerals is not only that they force us to honestly confront death, I love the opportunity funerals provide, if we take it, to remember death's not the whole story. In the Presbyterian Church, funerals are called services of witness to the resurrection. They're meant not simply to celebrate a life, but to remind us of the hope we have, the hope of life that came to us in Jesus Christ, life that is still at work in the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's important not to fall prey to the false conclusion that death is all there is. We can live in denial of death, but we can also live in denial of life. And so it's worth regularly calling to mind at funerals and every Sunday for worship that life, blossoming, blooming, renewing life is at work in the world. Since ancient times, one of the central images human beings have looked to in order to remember that life and growth and renewal are at work in the world is a tree. It's such a simple and everyday image, isn't it? A tree, you see them probably outside your door when you drive, they are all around us. And yet what a message they convey. I still remember a young woman I met when we were both in college at an InterVarsity Christian Fellowship gathering. And when she shared with me how she had come to faith, she spoke of a tree. She told of a time she'd been suffering from an eating disorder and it was at genuine risk of death. She'd been hospitalized for the condition and there, force-fed, she contemplated the end of her life. But then when she was released in the parking lot of the facility, she saw before her eyes a tree. And somehow that tree spoke to her of the power behind it, the power that gave that tree life. And she wanted to come to know that power more deeply. That led her on a journey, a spiritual journey that would lead her finally, as she put it, to giving her life to Jesus Christ, believing in him was God's power of life at work in the world. Have you noticed in the story scripture has to tell, it all begins in a garden and in that garden place so prominently is a tree called the tree of life. 
oh, it's not the only tree. No, there are all kinds of trees in the garden. Many we read that give nourishment to humanity and to other animals and creatures of the world. There's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil that humanity was told not to eat from, that they might live in appropriate limits God had set for them and designed for their thriving. Amidst all the trees and even that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, however, there is this tree of life. It is as if scripture does not want us to miss how a single tree can evoke and symbolize not just nourishment and not just the temptation to go beyond God's life-giving limits. A tree can also proclaim God brings life. Life, like the very life God first breathed into humanity. In Genesis chapter 3, we read of how this special tree proclaimed life, not simply of the temporal, ephemeral variety. No, the tree of life represented eternal life, a life ever renewed and renewing. So why, you might wonder, once humanity disobeyed God, would God then separate humanity from the eternal life that tree represented? As we read, God does in Genesis chapter 3. Well, one answer to that question is that the tree of life was linked to a whole way of life that humanity had known in the garden before that fall. In that garden, there was the tree of life in their midst. Humanity had known rich, symbiotic, mutually dependent life with God and one another and creation. Humanity cared for the flora and fauna, and they were nourished by it. Humanity knew relationship with God, where it was like God was walking among them. And not only was God present, God nourished them daily by the fruit of that garden, and humanity cared in turn for that garden. Ah, but then humanity broke that relationship through disobedience, Genesis tells us. And the life they had lost could not somehow be magically restored by simply eating from the tree of eternal life. No, that might provide avoidance of death, but it would not be life. Life was thriving relationship with God, one another, and creation. And the mere avoidance of death would be no substitute. So humanity was banished, that a new way forward could be found after the fall, a way of life that might come outside the Garden of Eden, but still in that fallen, but God-created world. And scripture tells us that's what happened. God broke into that fallen world outside the Garden of Eden to bring life. God freed a people from enslavement and gave them life in the form of manna in the wilderness. God gave the people statutes and commandments that they might know, once again, a thriving relationship with God, one another, and creation. God said in presenting the commandments to God's people through Moses, I place before you life and death, blessings and curses, choose life. That's what the commandments represented for God's people. Through the prophets, God would call people back to this way of life when they went away from it. In Ezekiel chapter 33, we read, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, says God, but that the wicked turn from their ways and live. The prophets called people back to a thriving life. And then in the fullness of time, our scriptures proclaim life came into the world in Jesus Christ. 
as the Gospel of John puts it, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what has come into being in him, the Gospel of John proclaims, was life. Jesus would later say of himself in John's Gospel, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. Life, the life God first gave to creation, the life symbolized in that tree that stood in the Garden of Eden, that life, we read in John, became flesh and lived among us. It was renewing, restoring, world-transforming life. It healed the sick. It fed the hungry. It brought justice to broken relationships. It even brought life to a dead man named Lazarus. And in Jesus's ministry, he invited people into a community where the kind of life we had once known in the Garden of Eden, life and rich relationship with God, one another, our neighbor, especially that neighbor in need and all creation, it could be glimpsed again. It was like the very kingdom of heaven had come near. And then the powers of death brought that Savior's life to an end. God incarnate, our scriptures profess, knew the totality of the human condition, even our mortality, dying as he did on the cross, receiving in his own body the wounds of the death-dealing powers at work in the world. And yet the Bible tells us that same Jesus, the one who brought life into the world, rose from the dead. He showed us God's power to bring life even after death. And that same Jesus ascended where he now sits at the right hand of the divine parent. And lest we think God's power to bring life into the world has left us, God sent the Holy Spirit into the world at Pentecost, filling the church and then the streets with God's renewing and recreating power. And then we come to the very end of the Bible, the very last book in our scriptures and the last chapter of that book, Revelation 22. And we see that the story of the Bible that began in a garden ends in a city. But did you notice in that new Jerusalem, in that glorious portrait of God's new creation breaking in and that we will one day know in full there, it stands the tree of life. The tree of life, we read, is there in the new Jerusalem, there in the world God is bringing about. And that tree of life, we read, is not only for the healing of individuals, it is for the healing of nations, national issues, national crises, disputes between nations. Even that can be restored and healed by the life God brings to the world. And along with this tree of life, we see the Lamb that classic image of Jesus Christ giving his life for the world and then being raised that we might know life eternal. In the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, as we see God's future breaking into the first century world and still breaking in today, there it stands, the tree of life. Do you hear what that tree proclaims? It proclaims God brings life to the world. God has brought life to the world. God is bringing life to the world now, and God will bring life into the world. That's what our scriptures proclaim, and it is good news. Here is a piece by one of the members of the Knox congregation that he has entitled The Tree 
of life. This is a piece by Christopher Sladoff. And you can see at the bottom of this tree and cross is Adam and Eve. That is an image of creation, God's good creation, where humanity lived in close relationship with each other and God and creation. We remember, of course, how humans disobeyed God. And after the fall, we remember Moses, who gave the commandments of God to the people. Those commandments, we recall, were life, God's gift of a thriving life to the people. Then we also see the prophets, symbolized here with a scroll in front of them, as prophets are so often depicted in art, prophets that called God's people back to life, a thriving life where even the widow, the immigrant, and the orphan would know community and thriving. Then we see further up how life came into the world in Jesus Christ with the great images of the incarnation, an angel announcing that Christ would be born, Mary kneeling in prayer, and that star of Bethlehem as well. As the tree goes up yet further, we recall how the death-dealing powers of this world put our Savior, the one who brought life into the world, to death on a cross. And yet at the top of the tree, Chris reminds us, there is the ascended Savior, the one who not only came to bring life, but brought resurrection and rose from the dead and now reigns in heaven, watching over us, the very Christ who promised the Holy Spirit, God's presence with us now and always. This piece entitled The Tree of Life. I love how it reminds us of God's life breaking in. So what have been reminders for you of God's life breaking in to this world today. Here are some that you shared. Marianne shared how the birth of their granddaughter has reminded them of life, praise God. Claire notes birdsong, cows and sheep, pheasants, the growing of flowers, fruits and vegetables. Annalise notes how cooking and baking and being able to create something new reminds her of God's power to bring life to the world. Carrie noted watching baby Elise grow and change every day and an unexpected amount of family time are reminders of life. Karen notes it's been a gift to be able to spend more time at home and watch up close the children's growing before our eyes and Philip notes how watching plants, fruits, and flowers he planted in his own garden as a child develop are symbols for him of life. Statesy notes the current movement going on right now to protest the death of Af deaths of African Americans at the hands of police is an example of a movement of life. And Josh notes how his kids and connecting with clients over a haircut, he's found his work life-giving. Praise God. In our household, one of the symbols of life breaking in stands right outside our door. We recently lost an avocado tree 
to death. But now in our backyard, we've recently planted a jacaranda tree. We weren't sure if it was going to make it, whether the movement would have killed it. And initially, all the leaves that were on it fell. But then green began to sprout from those branches of this tree we just planted this year. And then so recently, that blue jacaranda has started to blossom with purple flowers, a reminder of life. The Juneteenth commemoration on June 19th has served for years for many African Americans as a symbol of life. The event remembers back in 1865 how the news of emancipation of enslaved African Americans finally reached the state of Texas. Now that proclamation took place in the backdrop of death, so many lives brought low and ended by slavery. But Juneteenth represented a breakthrough in the long struggle for liberation, and that was worth celebrating. And so Juneteenth commemorations are often marked with festive music and great food, for they remember life breaking in. Well, friends, this and every week, we remember God brings life to the world. God brings healing to individuals and to nations. This and every week we're invited to receive the gift of our Savior's life once again, that it might renew us for the life of faith. Receive that gift. Christ offers you life, life in him. This and every week we remember a power greater than death has broken into our world. And one day, one day, it will make all things new. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.